Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Post Questionnaire. 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. Hey, Uli. How are you, Caroline? I'm good. Tell me about Edgar Caret. This is one I'm heartbroken about because I couldn't join you for the interview. Um, amazing, very important writer. Tell me a little bit more about him. I know, and actually, yeah, heartbreak is one of his themes. He, <laughs> Not he, my heartbreak. <laughs> no, generally heartbreak. And he comes from uh, Israel, but is really a globally recognized writer, known for short stories and a very moving memoir, My Seven Happy Years. And he writes these tiny stories, some of it microfiction, I guess, very, very short stories about the absurdity of daily life in today's Israel. Wow. And like some of the great writers, Kafka, Pynchon, et cetera, in the tradition, he says, what is absurd about life is how we're living our lives, not my stories in it. Right. So there's something really great to read these um, strange, um, uh, the bus driver who mistake, mistook himself for God, um, <laughs> things like that. Uh, and look at absurdity as a tool to understand how reality has been set up and presented as if it's natural to us. Right, when often it's, in fact, anything's exactly. like. And so uh, we were really lucky because Edgar was here um, in the United States for a bit for a book tour, and he had time right before he was going to the airport, so I was able to talk to him for an hour. Oh, thrilled that you spoke to him and really can't wait for this Really one. excited, yes. So now we're here. So uh, first of all, Edgar, thank you so much for being on the Post Questionnaire. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So uh, Post um, found this this questionnaire when he was 15 years old, and then he responded to it, and then he responded to it again when he was 16, and then again in his 20s, which means that there are no right answers, <laughs> and we may have you back later on if you don't like any of your answers. <laughs> okay, and yeah, yeah. in a few years, uh, I'll give totally different answers, I'm, I'm sure. sure. I'm sure, exactly. First um, question is, what is your idea of perfect happiness? Uh, I, can, I imagine something is like kind of a, a zero gravity and zero friction, like, you know, floating in space. Uh, I think that the closest I got to it was... Uh, uh, playing with my child or writing a story or smoking good pot. Well, maybe all of the above at once. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to play with your child while writing a good story when you're really stoned. Okay. Um, what is your greatest fear? Uh, 
since I was a child, I, I, I had this fear that I'll be a kind of, I suffer some kind of violence from people who will not be passionate to hurt me, like kind of like dying, stoning, or something like mm-hmm. that, that there will be some kind of a technocratic death. I, I wasn't afraid that somebody who hates me will stab me, but just people who kind of go through the motions. But this is before you knew who Kafka was. Yes. There are so many stories about that, of people dispassionately slowly killing somebody. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think th- this kind of. I think that kind of bureaucracy and violence. Yeah. You know, the combination is always ugly. Yeah. Um, what is the trait, characteristic you most deplore in yourself? If. Wow, there's so many. <laughs> uh, I I kind of I always see myself as uh, somebody who's. Uh, was too lazy and, and too anxious. Like, and with me, it is, it's like, I, I think that I always have this kind of defensive stance. You know, I, I've been living in the same apartment for 26 years because I'm afraid of moving. Uh, I'm, I've, all my life, I actually lived in four apartments and I uh, see myself as kind of a, like Immanuel Kant, mm-hmm. only without brains, you know. Uh, so I, you know, I, th- I think that let's say uh, moving an, moving an apartment is something that scares the hell out of me. What is the trade you most deplore in others? Uh, no, not not seeing the other, the, a lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. Which living person do you most admire? Wow, I'm, I just that I'm very bad at admiring people. You know, I kind of I, there are people that I like and people that I dislike. But uh, admiring for me is this kind of uh, looking up to someone, mm-hmm. and uh, it's as if like I don't have this feature. I can look at people and say, "Oh, he's a nice guy," or "He's a good guy," but but there isn't this kind of person that I look at it and I say, "Oh, I would want to be like him." Right. Okay. No. Yeah. This admiration of someone who's superior in a way. That's not... Y- yeah, it's a, I, I, I just I think that it's a kind of... When I look at people, it's like a, a apples and oranges. It's not like I say, oh, he's smarter and he's faster. It's a kind of a package deal. Right. And I say, okay, he's this guy. And and I cannot admire him because, because I know that I'll never be him, you know. So I can say I like to spend time with this person. Right. But... But it doesn't get any further than that. Right. What is your greatest extravagance? Something you allow yourself to do or have or be? Uh, I'm not sure I have one. Uh, uh, I like s- talking to my rabbit. I don't know, does it count as an extravagance? Like we, we have long conversations. Your rabbit. Yeah, I have a rabbit, uh, <laughs> and I really not like your rabbi, and not my rabbi. <laughs> I thought you were <laughs> no, and and it's funny. Like we have a very kind of a, a close relationship. It's basically uh, after the, uh, uh, getting the rabbit, I discovered that I was allergic to rabbits. Oh. So it's kind of this huge sacrifice having him because I have to take all these antihistamines, you know. But uh, but he's well worth. R- Worth it, you know. I never went to therapy, but I think that he's the closest to a therapist that I've ever had. 
What is your current state of mind? A, a tired one, an exhausted one. I just finished like a, a two weeks uh, reading tour. Mm-hmm. And and I think that uh, I, lo- I love the events and I love speaking on stage, but uh, I'm very, very bad at uh, traveling and you know and every, everything kind of fills me with anxiety so so I think that uh, whenever I don't have to to speak or give an interview I kind of get into this hibernate mode you know I kind of yeah. try to use as little battery as I can right <laughs> um, what do you consider the most overrated virtue success oh. I, I think that there is something about success that uh, for me, like success is totally not connected uh, to happiness mm. or to self-fulfillment or to this idea of belonging. So I think that many people want to succeed, and and I I, I honestly don't understand why. You know, I think that when when I teach writing, mm. uh, many people want to write a successful book, and I think that you know if you don't write what you're most passionate about then this success is kind of meaningless you know you just kind of you just got there but uh, got there with what or who exactly got there it's not you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah the other day you talked um about two weeks ago when i heard you and you said there has to be a kind of urgency in writing that you you need to want to tell the story if the motivation is maybe to succeed as a writer that's yeah, but but uh, for example, I, I think that uh, that in the U.S. they have this kind of term, uh, uh, the great American novel, and like wh- I would say, who wants to write the great American novel? I mean, you you want to write your novel, and I think that the uh, that this idea of kind of looking at the novel as something that uh, has a purpose, mm. you know, that it's something that can be leveraged, and uh, I think that that uh, that that. The moment that you think about writing this way, uh, for me, I, I, it uh, immediately castrates me. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's really like I say, oh, what is the most important topic? What should be said? And you lose all your authenticity and your ability uh, uh, to connect to the topics that you write about. You know, I think uh, uh, I was uh, uh, in China mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, when I did the Q and A's, and a Chinese uh, writer uh, asked me uh, asked me to share with with the audience uh, uh, how I wrote a story of mine called Hemorrhoids, mm-hmm. and I said to him, "Well, you know that in the year of eighty six there was a drought in the southern part of uh, Israel, and farmers could not uh, grow the co- uh, crops." And then I said, no, no, I'm just kidding. I wrote it because I have hemorrhoids, you know. So, <laughs> <coughs> so I think that that uh, when you have a hemorrhoid, you know, it bothers you, and it's uh, it's in your mind all the time, and you can't escape it. And there is something about writing that uh, that uh, you share your pain and your frustration with other people. Uh, and th- this is for me writing. What writing is all about? It's kind of a sh- this kind of uh, uncontrollable shout. Right. And the moment that people say to you. How about you shout something important that will have an impact, you know, then it kind of a priori make your shout kind of fake. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Success. On what what occasions do you lie? I, I think I lie all the time. I'm 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 not a I'm not conscious of my lies. 
Uh, but but one thing that is sure, I kind of uh, differentiate uh, between lies. I think that they are selfish lies and uh, selfless lies and empathic lies, you know. And uh, and for me, when I think about lies, I, I basically uh, try not not to be a nasty person. Mm-hmm. So the moment that, that it's not about nastiness, then if like we had an appointment and... I wait for you for 20 minutes and you say, oh my God, I'm sorry. And I say, no, no, I just, I just came here. <laughs> then I don't feel that I'm doing a bad thing even if I'm not saying the truth. So I, I, I think that many times I wouldn't even register it. Like I wouldn't say, oh, now I'm going to say something that is not true. Okay. It's just for me, like the subtext saying, I, everything's okay. You know, you're a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> and, uh, and the factual Uh, uh, the facts that I'm sharing with you seem to be to me less important. I think that uh, that kind of advocating uh, honesty at any price, yeah. I think that there is something uh, uh, far, the f- first and foremost, there is something very kind of uh, lazy about it. You know, we talk a lot about uh, free choice. So the moment that you say, I'll never lie, then you use this, you, you make life easy. You don't employ your judgment. You know, you become like a, mm. this total, totalitarian regime mm. of telling the truth mm-hmm. kind of uh, makes uh, your life easier and you kind of go on, on a kind of automatic pilot. It doesn't make you look at somebody and uh, and try to, 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 f- to feel how they're experiencing a situation. I don't see in it something noble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you most dislike about your appearance? Uh, the fact that I'm very hairy. <laughs> I think that it comes up in your stories a couple of times. Actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I must say That's that... what your wife says is the one thing you, you, you gave to your son. <laughs> yeah. A lot of hair. <laughs> yeah, actually, my son is also bothered by it, I think. It's a, it's, I think that there's something about hairiness that... Uh, kind of uh, makes me feel more like an animal. Mm. And uh, I think that there is something like in kind of my, me aspiring to be human that I want to, to transcend being an animal, even though I love animals. And I must say that due to my hairiness, I, I, I've gained the admiration of my rabbit because my rabbit, he really, he really treats me as kind of the leader of the pack because, because I'm the biggest rabbit he ever met you know I'm very hairy and I have big front teeth so so w- it doesn't matter where I sit uh, in the living room he will always sit by my side while my wife that is not hairy and doesn't have a big front teeth like you know he sees in it in her uh, a totally different species <laughs> nice. which living person do you most despise Well, you know, I said before that I don't really admire right, people, but right. I, I don't think that, that, that I kind of d- despise people, you know. I think I, I can be very scared or intimidated by people. I think that people like, let's say, uh, uh, Donald Trump or, or Benjamin Netanyahu or Boris Johnson, they are people who scare me. Those, all those kind of guys that, uh, that, uh, that are kind of like... Uh, Uh, reality shows stars, you know, yeah. those kind of guys that would win a survivor co- competition or a Big Brother competition. Right. Because I think there is something about them that is kind of a sociopathic and totally selfish and, and kind of, you know, like, for example, they would, no, they would feel 
all the time that something wrong is being done to them. Oh, well, yeah. so yeah. there's no symmetry. Like they can do something to somebody else and not understand what's his problem. Well, some, well, if the same thing would be done to them, they would think that the most horrible thing has been done to them. Yeah. And I think that there is something about this that it scares me, not in the sense that I say, oh, they're going to kill me. But it, 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 for me, it's kind of a reality check because when you, you talk to people like that, uh, you say, oh, you know, maybe I got the word wrong or my ethics wrong because they seem to be so convinced right. in their point of views. These kind of wounded narcissists, extreme narcissists. Yes, yes, and and uh, and th- these kind of people that that, uh, that basically have this kind of feeling that there is only one narrative, that uh, anything that kind of is n- is not their narrative is basically wrong. Right, right. What is the quality you most like in a man? In a man like, in a, n- not in a, a woman? Biological man. The next one is a woman. This is a very ah. 19th century question. The they don't have. Like in a man. Well, I think that what I like in a man is uh, 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 our simplicity. I think that, let's say, com- compared to, to women, mm. then, you know, men like kind of want uh, uh, to win, to lead the pack, uh, to have sex, you know, to be admired. And it kind of ends with that. And I actually think that with women, it's much more complicated. So what's the quality you most like in a woman? First of all, that most of them aren't hairy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, maybe you, again, you know, and what I'm saying is is not always true, but, uh, but uh, the lack of aggression Mm. The fact that you know that they are not as uh, aggressive and violent as men. Uh, sometimes they are, but uh, but uh, as a default, at least I know the stereotype. I I admire people who succeed not being aggressive. I'm aggressive, mm. and I totally dislike my aggressiveness. And I and I understand that it tot- totally comes from fear and some kind of uh, inability to deal with some situations uh, and. Uh, and I would really, really would like to be less aggressive. Mm. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and I like also to, no, I, I, I don't like, but I say that also. <laughs> and I think I think that the reason that that I I use them a lot is because I think that there is no Hebrew equivalent to them. So whenever I use them, I kind of say. Oh my God! I'm I'm actually speaking English. You talked about another word the uh, the other week in one of your stories. Um, actually, actually, right? We said actually, yeah, it's because of this or because of that. And you said that word actually does something by not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it's I I, I think that, that when you, whenever you have those words that kind of uh, have a space in a sentence, but but uh, you cannot. Uh, they have no uh, physical uh, existence, you know, yeah. you cannot see them. Right. Then there's something about it that it's like, uh, they, they feel kind of magical to me. You know, like you say, I can say it and I can not say it. Right. What actually what I think. Actually, <laughs> yeah, allegedly. You You're know. buying space or something. You're buying some time. Yeah, it's, it, and it's kind of, for me, it's this kind of a, a alchemy because I, I kind of, I take nothing and I turn it into semi-something. Right, semi, right, and it's not clear, right? Who or what is the greatest love of your life? Wow, I think they have many loves. Uh, 
I love, uh, I love my family and I'm not only speaking about my wife and child, I love uh, my mother, my brother, uh, I love uh, writing, I love, uh, I, f- I love what I perceive as humanity. Mm-hmm. I love all those kind of, uh, like this kind of uh, fragile ambiguity, unexpected ambiguity. Mm-hmm. I love uh, u- human uh, weakness when it doesn't lead to to ugly things. You know, this mm-hmm. kind of, I, the ability to cry and to break up and uh, to, to kind of, sh- kind of sh- sh- be shattered and at the same time to collect yourself together. But I think I love v- vulnerability. Mm. I, you know, when I was uh, a, a child, I really uh, liked superhero comics. Mm-hmm. And uh, the weaker the superhero was, the more I, li- I liked him. You know, it's like I, I couldn't read like comics of, like, of Superman. He was uh, too strong for me. Right. And so you like the backstory part? Because they always come out of some kind of overcoming, some kind of weakness, right? Or yeah, but 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 I think that that you know that let's say Superman it was his kryptonite, right. and and you say like the rest rest of the time like he was stopping criminals, and you say you know it's not a fair fight like they just shoot at him and the the bullets bounce off, <laughs> so I really always like those kind of uh, uh, Batman or Daredevil or those people that you, that you know that really didn't have any superpower, just some kind of a perceived himself as superhero, yeah. and. Uh, and I I think that that I'm very much attracted to weaknesses. I think that when I was younger, and I was uh, dating, then uh, ev- anything that would kind of project fragility would uh, uh, would attract me. Like I would be attracted uh, to to girls who wear glasses, for example, mm-hmm. which basically says that they don't see well, you know. But it was this kind of things that would right. automatically at- attract <laughs> me. When and where. Were you happiest? I I think that the uh, that my my happiest uh, moments were always either at my home or or at my parents' apartment, uh, and they were always kind of very trivial. I don't know. I was sitting in the balcony and eating a watermelon and. Talking to my rabbit, you know, <laughs> it's a. Uh, I it's funny because as a writer, I travel a lot, and I like traveling, and I have a lot of experiences, and I really like performing, and I really like the dialogues that that you have, like like we're having now. But in the bottom line, line I think that I'm uh, I'm kind of the the happiest when I'm when I'm in my safe zone, mm-hmm. and and you know, actually, when I think about it, I think maybe I'm the happiest when I write. And you write at home. And I write at home. I, I, it's difficult for me to write th- in any other place. Yeah. Which talent would you most like to have? Well, you know, <laughs> can I? You know, okay, it's the US. Nobody knows me, but I always have the, had this fantasy that I will make. A, I will ha- crap poops that will be totally dry, and you won't have to clean your butt up like a them. rabbit. Like a ra- like, like my a rabbit. rabbit. That's yeah. what rabbits do. Little droppings that you can just sweep up. Yes, it's a totally dry and uh, <laughs> and I don't know because because one one of the things that I hate the most is uh, is wiping my ass. I think it's like second to being hairy. You know, <laughs> it's this kind of those kind of things that they make you feel your physicality. Your physicality. So if you were a rabbit, you could just hop on. 
No mess. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm a reincarnation of a rabbit that uh, that still kind of uh, mourns the fact that he that I have to wipe my ass. Right. <laughs> If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? You may want to be a rabbit, but you get something else. <laughs> one thing about myself, wow. Uh, I would like to be uh, less less anxious. Mm-hmm. I think that many times uh, the fact that I'm scared kind of uh, uh, stops me from having new experiences. Mm. You travel a lot, though, so in some ways a lot of people get very anxious when they travel, so... You get, yeah, you but get through it. But I, I get through it. But but I think that you know that many times I will go to a place and the, and the, and if I don't meet somebody or I don't know, I kind of have this interaction. I could go to a city that I've never been in, and kind of you know, not not go out and uh, see the city. And I would say to myself, oh, you know, I'm too tired, or you know, what's the point? I don't like touristic places. But I think that. The bottom line of it is that there is some kind of fear in me, you know, mm-hmm. that I want to feel protected. Right. What do you consider your greatest achievement? <sighs> wow. Uh, I, I, I never kind of look at life as, uh, as made out of achievements, you know. I think that... Uh, I think that I would like to be a better person and uh, so I c- so I can't take credit for that. I I d- I, I d- the truth is that I don't find anything that that I've ever did kind of that I can count it as an achievement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people don't think of life in this you also don't think you think success is overrated does that make sense in connection to that yeah um if you were to die and come back as a person or a thing what would it be uh well i think i've already been a rabbit in past life uh i wouldn't want to be a rabbit by the way it's uh, it's really really scary you know actually rabbits are very anxious animal maybe that's what we have in common you know my rabbit all the time he He tries to be under something because he's afraid, I think, of vultures, you know, so he's under the sofa or under the chair. I wouldn't want to be a rabbit. I wouldn't want to live all my life under things. Uh, uh, if I could uh, come back, what would I want to be? Uh, I I have these things that I communicate much better with children than with adults, you know, so if it could have been... Uh, If I could come come back and be this kind of a child again, it would be nice. <laughs> a child, yes. Yeah. That's, nice. That's actually, I think, what the Buddha says. Ah, yeah? Actually, I think you reincarnated as a child, yes. Yeah, it's funny, you know, that when I think about children... The Buddha doesn't want to be reincarnated as the Buddha <laughs> 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 to start again. <laughs> no, but, but, but the thing about children is that I really feel that, you know, that the... Uh, when I meet children and I really like kind of hanging out with children, yeah. you know, it's it, by the way, which is something that is very problematic because I often like parents don't like the fact that they speak to children a lot. It kind of seems to sound like creepy. Creepy, right. <laughs> But the thing about children is that, they, that when you get into, let's say, kindergarten, all the children seem to be very, very different. 
you know, there is something very individualistic about them. Right. And he says, if we go through a process that, you know, that when you go on a subway, people would always kind of look about the same because they were taught to mm-hmm. to hide their differences. And I think that what I miss about the childhood that is this, this kind of freedom to be yourself, yeah. which I now find in writing. When I write, you know, I can be a character, I can be, right. the, this character could be, I don't know, a a sex-driven or, or greedy or chauvinist or aggressive, and I can just be that because it's in fiction. But right. I, when I was a child, I didn't need to write to be that. I was just who, who I was. Or many different things also. Many, many contradictory things. Yeah, right. Yeah. Actually, when you just said that, I thought whether the years of being a teenager are so complicated because you're supposed to start fitting into a box but there's now conflict because you're still so many different things. Yeah, I see it wi- with my son, who's 14 years old, that uh, many times uh, he he's grown up enough to understand what he's supposed to do, but he still have a strong memory of him not doing what he was supposed to do. Right. And it's kind of ripped between the two because kind of the superego says to him, you know, considering your age, you should do that. But but there is something in him saying, you know, but I remember so many times that there were things that I was sh- I was supposed to do and I didn't do. I remember the time when I wanted to take a poop, I didn't even go to the restroom, you know. <laughs> so so th- so it's kind of feeling I think that uh, that you you lose your your liberties and you lose your freedom. Yeah. And that's something that I kind of miss. Well, and you trade it in, like you said, for the superego or your sublimate or for reasoning for we hope enlightenment, so you use reason, but you give up on impulses, instincts, desires. You give up on a lot of other things. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like, you know, children, if they like you, they'll always touch you. Mm-hmm. And and as an adult, you know, I think that, you know, many times I see people, I like them, I want to touch them, but I know it you will be... You can't do that, right. Yeah, it right. will be seen as something awkward, you know. I feel it a lot with my students, you know. Sometimes, let's say, a student reads a story. Right. And it's really good. And I feel like going, I don't know, kissing him on the forehead or yeah. or petting his hair or doing something like that. And I say, you know, I, I know that I have tenure, but they're going to throw me out of university anyway. So I just say, oh, that was very good, uh, Eddie. I really liked your, <laughs> I really liked your story. The other thing you can do as a child, they tell you, I don't like you or I like you. Whereas adults, we don't do that. We don't go around usually, most of us, and say... Children, when they don't like somebody or something, they say, "I don't like this," or "I don't like you." So, so, so you know that when my 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 son was was young, like I think he was like five years old, uh, our next door neighbor came, and uh, he looked at her and he said, "Wow, you're old," and uh, uh, and you know, and uh, old in Hebrew sounds a little bit like a neighbor because skena and chena. It sounds the same. So, so she said, "What did you say?" And I said, "He said uh, he said that you're a neighbor." And my son said, "No, no, no! I said that you're old." And then neighbor said, "Yeah, I feel old." <laughs> and there was something about this moment that I, s- I thought to myself, "Why was I lying?" You know, he was saying something that was factually true, right. which she accepts. But uh, but this kind of anxiety, this social kind of, I was protecting. The, the system Both him and her and the they just communicated you know right. and I was there in the middle kind of trying to disrupt it right. and create something that was dishonest and not authentic right. <laughs> nice. where would you most like to live 
in my apartment. I've been living in it for 26 years. You know that I have to move. It kills you do, me. Really. Because, uh, because it changed the municipal laws. So the building next to us is going to tear it down and build kind of a, a skyscraper. And, uh, and I work at home. And it's like four meters from my window. Oh, so and so I'll have to move somewhere. So I, so I said to myself, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll take advantage of that and move a continent or something because, <laughs> because might as well move. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I, all the time I say I would never leave Israel, but my subtext is I would never leave my apartment. So I say if I leave my apartment, I should, <laughs> might I should, as well go I should ask myself, what do I think about <laughs> staying in my country? Live, move, move to California. <laughs> They're building a building next to yours, right? <laughs> That's a good reason. <laughs> What is your most treasured possession? So it's funny uh, uh, that once when I was young, uh, I, I was in a bar and all my friends already left the bar and I went to the restrooms. And when I was about to leave, this really, really big, scary guy who looked like hum- a human fridge, he grabbed me by the arm and he says, come and have a g- drink with me. And I said, ah, no, you know, I had enough, I'm going home. He said, have a drink with me. And I said, okay. And, uh, and I uh, sat next to this guy and we had a drink and he talked to me about his life. And what he told me was that he, that he has the best work in the world because he's a repossessor. And he said, some people like work in the office, but with me, every time I go to a different place, I enter places, you know, intimate spaces. Nobody can say no to me. And he says that whenever he goes to people's apartment and repossesses, he plays this game uh, with himself to to try and find out what's the most precious thing for them. So he says, you know, that you know, you can go to people's house and take like you know their jewelry, the most expensive thing, and they don't care. But then you take their jazz records or something, and you see them quiver, you know. And uh, being a little bit drunk at that moment, I said to him, oh, you know, if you go to my place, you can take everything, and uh, I wouldn't mind. And he said, uh, yeah, that's what most people think. So I, I got home really, really drunk. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, he's right. There must be something that, you know, that I wouldn't want people to take away from me. And I said to myself, I have to figure out what this thing is and hide it, which is kind of a drunk, drunken thought, you know. Yeah. And I've been kind of going through my stuff. And, like, you know, I don't care about books i don't care about clothes i don't care about anything and and w- at the point like i i couldn't find anything and i couldn't go to sleep because i was full of adrenaline and i sat down and i wrote a story about uh, a repossessor that comes to a writer's home uh, to repossess his writing talent and i thought you know that if there's anything i would be afraid that somebody would take for me would be my ability to write not because you know i don't know why I, I I want to, it's like, you know, it's a gift or right. something, but it's just that it's the only way I know to cope with life. And if they take it away from me, then, you know, I would just kind of bre- break <laughs> down and cry. <laughs> and then you've turned this into a story, <laughs> the Repo Man story. <laughs> what do you regard the lowest depth of misery? I think that, you know, you know there is this sense, sentence of a, uh, of Faulkner, uh, between uh, nothing and grief, I would always choose grief. And I think that the lowest you can get is when you reach nothing, mm-hmm. when you really, really don't care. Apathy, for me, is the, the most scary thing. You know, I'd rather feel the greatest anxieties than not feel anything at all.
Mm-hmm. What is your favorite occupation? Which I think sometimes means also if you would would be doing something else, unless you. Ah, yeah. Okay, it's not. We, we, you could be doing saying. No, it could, could like I could, I could say the Israeli occupation is my favorite occupation. <laughs> 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 <Okay>. <laughs> I think that's what Proust had in, in mind. <laughs> my favorite occupation. Uh, my wow. Well, you know, when I, all my life I wanted to be to be a, a elementary school teacher. I wanted to teach kind of uh, six years old and seven years old. But again, you know, the kind of relationships that I have with children and then their parents would probably complain. <laughs> Corrupted kids. <laughs> what is your most marked characteristic? I think that means what do you think other people notice about you first? You know that, that people always say about me, that I'm a nice guy. And the, the, it's like they have this thing, oh, he's saying, oh, he's a good guy, he's a nice guy. And it's funny because my subjective experience is that I'm not nice at all, you know? <laughs> and always when they say that it's kind of like, it's, I say, oh, no, no, they're not getting me. I'm kind of like, you know, I'm just kind of uh, scared and confused, you know? I uh, <laughs> And and it's funny that, that many times I, I have this kind of feeling that, that the way that I perceive myself and the way that the world perceives me are very different because... For example, I, I always see myself as kind of a lazy underachiever. Okay. And the, many people say, oh, you're so prolific. And and it's, it's a strange thing because, you know, let's say when you write, then I would say in, in a good day, I write two hours. So for me, I say, well, like, you know, 24 hours a day and you just write two hours, like you're really lazy. But, but I guess that other writers write even less. Write less. Yeah, you're also directing TV shows, you've made movies, so you've done lots of other things. I think people see that. But right, if it's only two hours a day, what are you doing for 22 other hours? Oh, no. So that's the thing that, that you know, that I kind of, that I, I, I many times have this kind of feeling that I'm, that I'm a bum. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, I, I always, uh, I walk my son to school. I I try to walk him back from school. It's some, at some stage, he says, Daddy, you know, you're arresting I, me. I'm old enough now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the, feel, the general feeling is that uh, that kind of, uh, that I'm, I'm using a lot of my time to do things that are not very pragmatic. And, uh, and that kind of gives me the feeling that I'm, that I'm a lazy underachiever. Mm-hmm. But I, well, when people talk to me, they say, Oh, you're doing so much, and so there is something very, very confusing. I, I don't know if it is me or, or the other people who are getting it wrong. Well, Probably might, both of us. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what do you most value in your friends? Uh, pers- persistence of uh, friendship. You know, my, my my best friend is is my friend since the age of three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is something kind of very a priori about our friendship. You know, it's like his political ideas are totally opposite to mine. Uh, I think his ethics are not same as mine. His ambitions, he doesn't have any ambitions, actually. Like, he's a guy who, had, who made this exit when he was 32 and kind of, like, you know, tries to make money all the time just to pass time, but... Uh, but like we see the world totally different but there was something that was decided that we're friends mm. and that we love each other and that we're loyal to each other and mm. and you feel as if there's nothing that could threaten that you know it's like 
He's my friend for 49 years. We had one fight when we were 11. I, I wasn't nice. I apologize. It was in the afternoon. I apologize that evening, and we, we never fought mm. ever since. That's nice. So the value is it, first the, first the commitment to the friendship. Yes, and this this idea that it's kind of that it's un- unquestionable is that it's like you know it's like the the idea that we will not be friends it's not there so so I'm saying that let's say if he's interested in something then uh, then it, it it's it's becomes my interest you know yeah. he's he's interested in a, a real estate investment so I know a lot about real estate <laughs> investment and you know I'm I made a series now about a real estate agent I don't think I would have done it if not for him but but the moment that he is it because I like him then it interests me I, I, I have the same thing with my son it's like you know my, my wife she's very much against video games mm. and with me like all the games that my son plays I know them very well I know the rules I know the characters and because I I see that they make him happy, so so I kind of I I'm interested in his happiness. Right, right. It's not the main thing. Hmm. That's nice. Who are your favorite writers? Well, I think my favorite writers are. Well, you know, I think favorite writers can change, but I think that the two writers that kind of gave me the ability to write or the legitimation to write. And both of them I've read during my compulsory army service when I was 18, which was really like the down point of my life, uh, were uh, Kafka and the Kurt Vonnegut. And, uh, and I grew up in Israel where, where really the model of a writer was some kind of a secular prophet. Like the writers, people like uh, the late Amos Oz or, or David Grossman or A.B. Yoshua, basically they had this stance of a... Of a mentors you know people who are better than the readers and uh, and when I read Kafka I suddenly thought wow maybe I can write too I mean this guy for sure is more fucked up than I am you know and uh, and this idea of kind of a writer that uh, that kind of writes about his incompetence that uh, only have questions but can't offer any answers I think it had a huge impact on me and uh, and with Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, the first book of his that I re- I've read was uh, Slaughterhouse Five, yeah. and this book that you know that it's uh, basically both an autobiography and a sci-fi book. Uh, this ability to kind of slide between genres, to to not to take form uh, seriously, but at the same time talk about issues that mm. were very very mm. serious and crucial, and to be moral without being moralistic, to be accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is something that I truly appreciate. You know, I think that, you know, let's say Vonnegut and Kafka, I can easily tell the stories to a child and he will be really interested in those stories. Well, for example, Proust stories, y- you know, a, a Proust uh, book, it's not something that, y- that it's just the text itself. It's this kind of thickness of text. I was just thinking, though, it's interesting because Proust, there is a part that he's the master of the novel. He's considered the greatest novelist of the 20th century, et cetera. His sort of reign in France, he's really a deity. At the same time, he's, as the narrator, Marcel, and and Marcel Proust, the novelist, and I'm really sorry Caroline isn't here because she knows all of this much better. They're kind of failures 
in a massive way. They're actually not grand society people. The whole point is looking in all the time. He's failing. But 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 I think that that, uh, that there is something about about the story. Like it doesn't matter. Like I'm uh, like I'm saying, the story exists in the text and in the form, and it's less let's say in the plot. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and I think that I love this thing about let's say Kafka metamorphosis that. Mm-hmm. You can tell it to a child, and you know, and many of the Vonnegut stories right. basically have this kind of a clear fable-like plot that yeah, yeah. that you add things on it. But in the bottom line, it's kind of it. It can be be an oral tale or a bedtime story, you know, if you transform it. And and for me, I I always uh, I always uh, admire a a. a, a, a a, a thick plot, you know, a, right. st- a story right. that you can kind of uh, uh, grab and hold to. Well, you have some of your fiction is very short, and it's a lot of plot for this short space, two or three pages, and a lot of things are happening. Um, and what I always liked about your work, and then there are things that are happening, and you don't complete them, but in your head, they keep on happening. So you open up sort of an action or something and then in this small space of the story it concludes in a certain way but it still goes on yeah it's I, I, I think that you know the way that I see a story is that you enter this kind of uh, infinite space and it's uh, from all your four sides there are kind of many many doors and every time you you say something let's say I, uh, the protagonist was tall then you close the door because it cannot be short anymore and then you say Hmm. And and then uh, he died, then you close the door, so he cannot live anymore. And there is some wish when I write uh, to 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 pass what what I feel, but at the same time to leave as many doors open. Because mm-hmm. for me, like the difference between between uh, books and let's say filmmaking is that when you see a movie, you you're passive. You can in- interpret right. the the film in a different way, but. But you cannot imagine the voice of of the of the character, or you can't Im- imagine the pace of things. And when I write a story, I really I want to kind of uh, co-direct this film with the reader. I want to li- leave the reader with as many choices as I can. You know, it's funny. I have a story called Crazy Glue, mm-hmm. and this cra- this movie, uh, this story was adapted to quite a few short films. I think about ten, and those short films, the the scope is between a romantic comedy to a horror movie. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, two people can read the sh- same story and one could say, oh, that's so funny, and the other say, oh, my God, you know, then I'm kind of happy about it. I'm saying, okay, yeah, th- yeah. the story has enough space that, let's say, I talk about the relationships and somebody can take his history of relationship and say, oh, this is so beautiful, and somebody can take his own personal experience and say, oh, my God, it, right. it's horrible. So it's kind of um, the ambiguity opens something up. It's not supposed to be two options versus one, which people, I think, misunderstand. It's not a contradiction, but you're saying you're opening up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like I tell you, for example, let's say if I, if I say to you now the word pain, so I, if you're into a BDSM, you could say, ah, sexy, you know? Right. And if you're me, you say, oh, oh, my God, no, please don't do it, you know? And I think that, w- that when I, I write a story, I don't want to write pain. It's a bad thing. I want to say pain, and you take it, you know, right, forever right. It, it communicates with you. Because it's kind of a, 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 this, this idea of, of a story being a, a dialogue mm-hmm. between a text and yourself and not some kind of a monologue that doesn't 
leave you the freedom to to interpret things in a way that that will let your personality come out but that gives you a very different place compared to those secular prophets in a way because you're not giving guidance in a way of saying this is the path to take no it's i i think that it's the opposite of giving gu- guidance it's kind of a maybe sharing a confusion yeah and for me i think that that the that the confusion uh, is very ethical you know i think that you know the the most horrible things done in history were done by people who were not confused who have clarity oh yeah Yeah, absolute clarity that's probably the most dangerous very, da- very dangerous thing it, it, I don't know if it's the most but a dangerous it, it, thing. it is very dangerous and I think that let's say I sometimes tend to see life as some kind of obsessive compulsive behavior and for me like a good story is a slap to your face something that will make you ask oh, oh my god where, where am I what's going on so right. if I can lead you somewhere that it will be like kind of an Escher painting that mm-hmm. you find yourself inside an oxymoron mm-hmm. then the things that were clear to you will look less clear mm-hmm. And it will make you kind of ask yourself a question. And if I can make you ask yourself a question about something that, that, that you thought that you knew before, mm. I feel that I've com- committed some kind of ethical action. Mm. So this story opens up a space that's already there, which is life. It doesn't create confusion. It just points to the fact that we tend to minimize or try to suppress it because suppress it, right? because because I think that the need to suppress confusion is 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 normal. I, I give you the, the most I don't know in simple example. I, it's like you know when you go home, there is this same homeless person you know that he sits uh, I don't know on the on the on the floor in the middle of the street. And basically when you go next to him, it's binary. You have two options. You can ignore him or you can give him a dollar. Now this guy uh, is a homeless person. He's not a dollarless person, you know? Basically, you, sh- you should say, maybe I should take him home, yeah, say, bro. have a shower, right. sleep on my bench, you know? It's like, you know, but don't wake up the kids if you wake up in the middle of the night because, you know, they, they, they don't sleep well and if you wake them up, they won't go back to bed. But this option, it's not even in your mind because if it will be in your mind, you will become, you will be crazy. So you say, okay, I reduce this kind of a reality. It's, it's not that this guy needs a dollar. He needs a place to sleep. You know, it's going to be really, really cold at night. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you don't even let yourself register that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the story can make you register that for the plain fact that it's fictitious, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. so, I think, so I think that there are many many things that kind of shut down automatically uh, in me in life mm. and that I can open them up in a story it's kind of beautiful because when when you just give this example of the homeless person and you think it's absurd to take somebody home but then I think a lot of your work is under this label of absurd literature because you're showing the absurdity that we've reduced a situation like this to two simple choices give him a dollar or don't give him a dollar When and you say the absurdity is actually that we walk past somebody and think giving him a dollar would is the right response or one response there's or, so many or, other or, or I could say that, that that basically like the absurd option is actually the normal one the real one right exactly that's what I'm saying you're the authentic out one, yeah. that would be the authentic one and uh, and uh, and I'm saying you know for example uh, because I'm an ex- anxious person I have this kind of a uh, a uh, pattern of behavior and that I give m- money to to beggars but only if they don't approach me and the moment that they come and say give me a dollar 
I will never give them a dollar. He has a very famous little short story about false, um, like fake money in Baudelaire as a prose poem. Someone gives a beggar a, a button <laughs> and the beggar beats him up. <laughs> and he really values and appreciates the beggar, of course, because he points out the whole absurdity of the system of giving somebody, the beggar pretends to be blind and isn't, and sees that it's not real money. Yeah. So the beggar actually responds like a real authentic full being. Yeah, so you he, he's been be cheated. He should be grateful. He's been cheated. <laughs> he's been cheated, right? But 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 you know what? At the same time, again, you know, there is this uh, a poem by by a Dutch poet uh, about this kid that every time that he goes to to school with his, with his father, they pass next to next to a beggar, and uh, the the kid describes the beggar and he says like everybody is anxious and they're hurrying hurrying. And he's in the best corner with the sun in his face. And s- the people who give him money, they bow in front of him like he's a king. And the people who do not give him money, you can feel that they, they, they feel kind of a stress with themselves. And he says, when I grow up, I want to become a beggar. So I think, so I think that this is this kind of a, a thought that, that art can give us, you know, that we can transcend this kind of a pragmatic reduction that kind of helps us survive, that you know that we are a little bit like kind of horses that they put this thing on our eyes so we only go straight. Right. And and when we read and write, we we say, okay, you know, we're safe now. It's not really happen- happening, so we can look and sideways. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. What is your hero of fiction or film or... An imagine, imagined person. I I love I always loved the Huckleberry Finn. I think that you know the the idea of Huckleberry Finn, uh, being brought by an ethos that uh, a slave is property, and at the same time helping a slave to escape. So, so he's kind of doing the right thing, but all the time feels that he'll go to hell for it, you know? So I think that there is, there is something about this kind of character that, uh, that uh, it's very kind of Kantian in the sense that that his instinct uh, make him be compa- making, uh, act compassionately, but at the same time, he's ashamed of his compassion. Amazing, yeah. Amazing. Great, that's a great figure, yeah. Um, which historical figure do you most identify with? It has to be somebody in the past. Uh, I think Job, but uh, <laughs> but mostly because of my hemorrhoids, you okay. know. Okay, <laughs> he, he suffered a lot too. <laughs> okay. Who are your heroes in real life? Uh, I I think that if there is anything close to a hero in my real life, it's uh, my older brother, and my older brother is this kind of a he's a genius. He he graduated from high school, did his final exams, and started studying when, when he was about fourteen, and uh, and he worked in a, in this kind of a, a, a company like a NASA company, you know that uh, <laughs> it's really huge, you know, and he and he had the, all those options that uh, you have to he had to kind of. St- work for another kind of couple of years to to have those options they uh, yeah. realized and then like something sometimes something like four months before uh, he would get the options uh, he decided that he doesn't like his job and he wanted to leave it and and 
I said to him, you know, how about you just stay there for an extra four months and you get the money? And he said to me, I don't believe that, you, that you're giving me this advice. You're saying, wake up in the morning, see, do something that you don't like just because you get money. And, and he quit. And uh, my brother is really like, a, he's not, a, he's not a rich in any way. I, I think he doesn't make a lot of money. And, uh, and sometimes his life can be very, very difficult. But there is this kind of a sense of imposed integrity to him. You know, you said about children that they say to people, I don't like you. Mm-hmm. There is something about him that, uh, that he can't uh, move away from what he thinks mm-hmm. that is right mm-hmm. uh, just so he'll gain something or he'll have some kind of feeling of safety. And, uh, and it's, it's, I wouldn't want to be him. It seems to me very, very difficult, difficult but... Uh, but uh, but if anything, uh, I admire this kind of uh, integrity. Yeah, integrity, integrity, and and thinking about what you want, not getting distracted by others telling you what you should have, and then actually doing it. It's complicated. And and also there is something about him that is uh, super competent. So so it doesn't matter if it's something uh, a, a electronic electronical or mechanical or if it's computers you can fix everything so m- my mother now is going through dementia and uh, and uh, often when I ask her like I think it was beautiful before I left I asked her uh, do you know who I am and she said uh, well I know that I love you and I know that you love me isn't that enough and when I asked her about my brother so she said the uh, uh, He's the great mechanic of the universe, <laughs> and I think that it's such a nice. that it's such a great definition of him. It's basically this idea that that uh, he usually don't understand people. Like I mean, he's the kind of guy that that can fall like like conman can really kind of con him easily b- because he believes people. But when something doesn't work, he can make it work. Nice. That's nice. What are your favorite names? Uh, I I love my son's name, uh, Lev. Uh, Lev in Hebrew means heart. Mm-hmm. And when my wife was pregnant, uh, she asked me how would you, uh, I want to call our son, and I say I want to call him Lev. And and the thought about it was that in Hebrew, all the names have meaning. Like Edgar, my name is Challenge. My brother's name is Nimrod, which means we shall rebel. You know, every name means something, and uh, sometimes you have uh, you have like uh, names like the tall one and the kid is short, or the smart one and the kid is dumb. And there is something about heart that uh, heart can be everything. You know, it can be soft, it could be hard, it can be brave. Mm. So uh, I, I think that the fact that it's so open and also that the word is so short, I really uh, love yeah. short wo- short words. That is a beautiful name, Lev. Uh, what is it that you most dislike? In the word? Could be anything, yeah. Something you really dislike. I really dislike this kind of older thing that, you know, this idea that like a baby, child, grown-up, old man die. I don't like the Eric Erickson's idea that we have a pattern, we go through these phases, or Joseph Campbell, <laughs> the hero's journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, f- so for me, like, you know, I would want us to be kind of those kind of, a, like, you know, a... Yeah, how to say, a, a firecrackers. Mm. Like, I would want us, you know... 
to get better like you know to become like stronger oh, and faster and smarter and then explode <laughs> you know i don't like i don't like the decline i would you know I'd, yeah, yeah that actually would be better right yeah yeah you actually just more intensity and then it's over yeah it's i, I think that there is something about the decline again you know i think that i can admire it uh, from kind of y- humane perspective you know kind of like understanding and internalizing and reflecting but the uh, but the uh, from a selfish point of view i would just want to kind of reach this point where i am mm. at my peak and then be gone it's interesting it's i just thought for a moment the poet i really like a lot is rilke and spent a lot of time reading it and translating it and he he tragically terribly died too young really terrible at 51 i think but he never talks about old age really Yeah. He lived this really intense life. He lived a very, very intense life, actually. And somehow he doesn't, didn't get around to doing the other part. So I, because I only know the completed works. I only know the first part. There's no later part. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, and if you think about it, like we live now in a world that, uh, that let's say, uh, you, you kind of change your iPhone to a different model before it dies, before it grows old and right, dies. Right. So, so we have this kind of uh, idea of kind of a... Uh, Uh, having things and then changing them you know and uh, we're doing it rapidly and really and this idea of us kind of being this car that we keep driving it until we're out of fuel you know and it rattles <laughs> and it kind of stops in this arbitrary place you know there is something uh, I accept it but you know but I'm saying if anybody would want to, to have my view about how we can improve things then I would want it to be <laughs> done differently <laughs> um, what is your greatest regret I think that, uh, that there are many things that I know now that if I could have shared with m- myself when I was young uh, uh, I would act uh, differently I think I think that mostly it's w- in relationship between men and women like in you know, other romantic things mm. I think that uh, that all my life i I've tried too hard kind of basically kind of harassing and and scaring the the women I, I was <laughs> interested in <laughs> it's until I found my wife was so kind what of would you say to your younger self? <laughs> I would just say like chill, relax, you yeah. know it's like kind of do whatever you're doing, but more slowly you know <laughs> try to sweat a little bit less <laughs> you know because because I really feel that you know that, that, that this I, I I think that that for m- most of my life I had this kind of ethos that uh, that uh, if you want something if you try harder it's gonna happen mm. and I think in human relationship you really this is really what makes m- what stalkers are made of you know <laughs> and uh, and I really feel that that uh, that uh, you know if I would enjoy to be with a person I would want to be with them all the time mm. and you know and if I liked uh, talking to a girl I would call her you know 10 times a day mm. and uh, and I think that there was uh, beneath this kind of uh, inability to uh, Uh, to see things from another person's perspective mm. you know it's really, I remember that when I was a teenager I, I came up with this amazing idea of on of hitting on girls and it was that uh, uh, I, I saw myself at that age as like uh, as like 
kind of a strong teenager. So I would come to, <laughs> to girls and say to them that I bet them that if I hold them in my arms, uh, I, can, uh, I can guess how much they weigh. And the idea was that the moment I'd hold them in my arms, I'd be like this kind of fireman saving them from a burning house and they will see that it's kind of nice to be held in my arms. But I never thought that, you know, that actually girls don't want uh, people to guess how much they weigh, you know. So, <laughs> so, so I think that this was kind of this idea that I was too much, too much in my story. I think, you know, in my, my last collection, there is a, a guy who is a virgin yeah. and he has uh, sex with a girl. And uh, after they have sex, he says to her, thank you. And I think that this is kind of reflecting the kind of person that I was, like the, this idea that I say, oh my God, it feels so good. Wow, that's so nice of you. But the thought that actually it maybe feel as good to oh, the other yeah. person yeah. kind of escaped me. So there was something kind of too self-centered and uh, mm -hmm. hyperventilating in me. <laughs> um, how would you like to die? You know that in the TV series that uh, that we've made, then uh, one of the characters says that uh, I would like uh, to die drowning in a in a swimming pool full of whiskey. <laughs> but he's an alcoholic, you know. So, yes. <coughs> so uh, it's uh, a terrible <laughs> image. It sounds terrifying. <laughs> okay. But 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 I think that. Uh, you know those kind of uh, fairy tales when somebody kind of dies with all the people that he that he loves around him, and he's saying kind of goodbye and kind of will himself to death, kind of just letting go, is is something that uh, I can connect to. You know, with my father, he had the terminal cancer, and all the time, like even when he was in the, his last day and he was in a hospital room. I remember, and there was a time in, during the day, I think it was around three o'clock, that in the little windows that he has in his room, the, the sun would come and shine on his face, and he would say, oh, it feels so good, you know? And he would have this positiveness. And then uh, one night, he said to me, I can't take it anymore. Mm. And in the morning, he was dead. Mm. So I think that, you know, it's not that I would want to, he suffered a lot, but uh, and I don't think that I have it in me, this ability to keep my positiveness <laughs> while suffering, <laughs> but this idea of saying, you know what, I'm done. Mm. To will myself to death. Mm -hmm. You have another, um, in that book, um, The Good Seven Years, your uncle, uh, uh, Abraham or Avraham or something, who yes. left yeshiva really young, and then someone, the rabbi said, until you find back your way to the Torah, you will not die. So he lives this great life, and then you said at the end, though someone comes to him, a relative or something. It's my father. Your father. Oh, your father, and reads Torah with him, so actually, and then he can die. Yes, so because because the, 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 the truth is that he was like in in a coma, yeah. where the doctor said he's going to die in twelve hours, and he was in this coma, you know, for a very long time. Mm. And my father, who knew the story, came and prayed next to him. And my father was not a religious person, you know, but but this kind of idea is that if he will help him, you know, ret return to religions and he can finally... But he was release. released from that kind of <laughs> sentence, right? Life as a sentence. What is your motto, if you have one? Like um, a motto? A motto, like a... Like ah, a, a motto? Like a, yeah... Um, uh, What's the French? devise or something. Yeah, like I understand. Yeah. The motto is uh, 
if you have one, yeah. Uh, I have to, yeah, I'll think of one. A motto <laughs> is... Uh, Shut up and listen. You know, it's, I'm, saying, <laughs> I, I'm, sa- I'm saying it's a motto that I say to myself because I tend to, to talk more, more than I listen. So I often say to myself, shut up and listen. And, and it's kind of, for me, shutting up is like kind of stopping my breath. Mm. You know, it doesn't come naturally. It's a nice motto, actually. It's quite important, I think, for today's age, especially, <laughs> when very few people shut up at all <laughs> and no one listens at all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I think that's it. So uh, great. It was great fun. Yes, thank you so much. Actually, <laughs> I'm going to think about all these answers now. Yeah. So thank you, Edgar. And um, and we, we have to meet in, what, six years, four years, 20 years? Oh, no, years? he did this sooner. Proust did it two years later. I think he revised his answers. Oh, wow. It's a, The good thing about me is that, is that I never remember what mm. I say. So it's, a, it's funny because, you know, when I look back at interviews, then the ones that I totally remember are only the bad ones because if I enjoy a conversation you don't that, remember, yeah. that I don't remember what I said well we uh, Caroline was really uh, regrets that she couldn't be here so but she's really looking forward to hearing this and I want to thank you especially for making time between lots of traveling <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, so thank you for being on the post questionnaire thank you thanks great <laughs>